Well, we come now to our study. We're looking at the doctrine of salvation. And in this part, we are focusing on the nature of Christ's atoning work before moving on to what's actually applied to the redeemed. In last Lord's Day, we highlighted two important aspects of the cross work of Christ, and those were expiation and propitiation. Just really quick review. To expiate means to make amends, to atone for. Specifically, it refers to the cleansing of our sin and the removal of sin's guilt. And we saw that played out in the sin offering on the Day of Atonement. You remember after the first goat had been sacrificed for the sake of its blood, the other goat was symbolically loaded with the guilt of Israel's sins as the high priest pressed both hands onto the head of the goat and confessed those sins over the animal. That goat was then taken out of the camp and driven eastward to demonstrate what we read in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And thus we see in Christ's fulfillment of this that the offering of himself cleanses us from our sin and removes sin's guilt. Then on the other hand, there is propitiation. Thus the purpose of propitiation is the removal of God's wrath against us for our sin. And we saw that played out in the burnt offering. The one feature that was unique to the this offering is that the whole animal, apart from his skin, was offered up to God on the altar. Nothing was held back. The whole burnt offering thus signified a life of complete and utter consecration to God, a life of self-denying obedience to his law. And this was the life that Christ lived, him alone, as he offered up his service to God. And that's where we concluded our lesson last week. Well, today I want to highlight a third aspect to the atoning work of Christ, and that is the aspect of reconciliation. Murray writes, and this is just to set things in context, propitiation places in the focus of attention the wrath of God and a divine provision for the removal of that wrath. Reconciliation places in the focus of our attention our alienation from God in the divine method of restoring us to his favor. Obviously, these two aspects of the work of Christ are closely related, but the distinction is important, unquote. Now, I hope you can beginning to see as we move along how all of our needs are being addressed by Christ in his atoning work. He addressed the needs associated with our guilt and sin, the needs associated with God's wrath against our sin. And now here in reconciliation, he addresses the need that comes from us being alienated from God because of our sin. And that we are alienated is clearly seen throughout the Bible, but I'll just look at Isaiah 59, 1 through 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. You know that our sins have created a break in our relationship with God is by and large undisputed among those who profess the faith. However, one of the questions that has come up in talking about this is how are we to understand the nature of that break? 
think about it. We can have a disposition as the offender of alienating ourselves from God. We in our rebellion and in our unholiness will walk away from God. We saw Adam and Eve in their shame and guilt hide themselves from God when they heard him coming after they had sinned. But is that the only way to understand this alienation? What about God and his actions? When God came to Adam and Eve after they ate of the forbidden tree, would have God's disposition toward them remained the same regardless of their actions? Now you may think, ah, these guys are just splitting hairs again. These silly questions, right? What difference does it make? Well, it makes a huge difference. You know, what you often hear from people is how we have walked away from God, how we hide from God in our shame and our guilt and our rebellion. And that is all certainly true. But what is often left out of the conversation is how God has alienated himself from us. And when you leave that part out, what you end up with is a focus on man. You have you kind of paint this picture of, well, you know, God loved us, but we rebelled. We walked away from him. Yet God just kept on loving us. Nothing. It didn't, it didn't change God. It didn't offend God. And so it's up to us, since we're the ones who walked away, to do something and fix this relationship. But when you paint it that way, you end up with a very bad, distorted view of God and of the atonement. One that robs the significance of what Christ actually accomplished. What it does, to parallel a point we made in our first lesson, is it waters down the holiness of God. I've said it before, I'll say it again. God hates sin and he hates sinners that god hates sin is readily admitted by many who profess the faith right we'll quote proverbs 6 that's easy to quote there are six things that the lord hates seven that are an abomination to him haughty eyes a lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans feet that make haste to run to evil and a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. We'll also quote Isaiah 1. There we read that God hates formalistic worship that attempts to hide sinful living. God says in Isaiah 1, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And of course, we know that God hates idolatry. Deuteronomy 16, 22, And you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. These are easy to quote, but what about Psalm 5, verse 5? The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Not you hate all evil is certainly true, but you hate all evil doers. In Psalm 11, 5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And what about Leviticus 20, verse 23? There God told Israel that he hates the nations, that he's going to drive out from them because of their customs. And in Malachi 1, which is quoted in Romans, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert 
If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear it down. And they will be called the wicked country and quote, the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Beloved, we often hear that God hates the sin, but loves the sinner, meaning that somehow God separates the sinner from the person who's, or the sin from the person who's doing the sinning. That's not what scripture teaches. God's wrath not only rests on his sin, but on the sinner as well. God doesn't send sin to hell as an abstract. He sends the person to hell who sins. Jesus said in Luke 13, but he will say to you, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire and will afflict personal vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These people, Paul says, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and be marveled at among all who believe. And then in Deuteronomy 28, we read, And he, that is God, will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt, of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And as the Lord took delight in doing good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. It's so important that we grasp this. Why? Because as I said, it was not merely for man's sin in the abstract that Christ was punished. Rather, it was Christ the person who suffered and died as a substitute for people who are sinners. It was that active hostility that God has against sin and against sinners that was put on display at the cross. Murray writes, the cause of the alienation is, is of course our sin, but the alienation consists not only in our unholy enmity against God, but also in God's holy alienation from us. And thus the focus of Christ's work of reconciliation is the removal of God's holy alienation from us. And we'll see this in four passages that we'll look at and close. We see this, for example, in Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. A couple of points there. First, notice that in verse 8, 
the death of Christ is set forth as the supreme demonstration of the love of God. We've said this before. But what this emphasizes is God's attitude of this historical event. It's not emphasizing our subjective attitude that we have towards it. This is God's. Secondly, this passage states that we were reconciled to God through the death of Christ. Robert Raymond notes both verb forms, we were reconciled, and having been reconciled are in the aorist tense, suggesting that the specific removal of alienation or resultant reconciliation that Paul had before his mind occurred punctiliarly. Those may have a hard time saying that. It happened in a point in time with the death of God's Son. And it is now an accomplished fact. Such a change of attitude clearly can be true only of God and only with reference to the elect, since most men continue in their enmity against toward God. Unquote. Thirdly, the phrase reconciled to God through the death of his son, verse 10, parallels the phrase having now been justified by his blood in verse 9. Well, we know that justification is forensic and does not refer to an inner change in the disposition of man. And thus the parallel phrase, reconciled to God, suggests that it too be given the same judicial meaning. And then fourth, we see in verse 11 that we have received the reconciliation. Again, this does not indicate a change in us, but rather a change in the disposition of God. Notice what it does not say. It does not say that we have now received the removal of our enmity. Well, another passage highlighting the work of God in the act of reconciliation, rather than focusing on our action, is 2 Corinthians 5, 8, 18 through 21. There it says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here we read that this reconciliation is a finished or accomplished work. Again, Raymond writes, the verb form in this phrase, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, in verse 18, is in the aorist tense. Again, suggesting that the removal of alienation occurred punctually with the death of Christ and is now an accomplished fact. Furthermore, Paul speaks of reconciliation in terms of two complementary acts, one negative, one positive, two forensic acts. God is said to be reconciling the world by not imputing men's trespasses and also imputing them to Christ, verse 21. Therefore, he is setting forth the concept of reconciliation in terms of a past, objective, and forensic event, not an ongoing subjective operation in men's hearts. Then third is Ephesians 2, 14 through 17. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Again, first we see as with the previous verses, we see the aorist tense in verse 16 signifying that this reconciliation was an accomplished fact through Christ's cross work. And then secondly, notice in verse 14 that the work of Christ addresses the hostility between Jew and Gentile. The word translated there in order that, verse 15, governs not only the verb of creating in verse 15, but also the verb of reconciling in verse 16. In other words, Christ's work not only created one new man out of Jews and Gentiles, but also reconciled both of these parties to God. And thus Charles Hodge comments, it is perfectly pertinent to the apostles' object to show that the union between the Jews and Gentiles was affected by the reconciliation of both by Christ's atoning death to God. The former flows from the latter. In this connection, the words having slain the enmity on it serve to explain the declaration that the cross of Christ reconciled us to God. His death satisfied justice. It propitiated God, in essence, removed his wrath for his enmity to sinners, end quote. So we see, in other words, that it was Christ's work on the cross that is said to have removed God's, not man's, enmity toward the one new man created by Christ. And then lastly, Colossians 1, 19 through 22. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through, uh, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. But you can guess what my first point is going to be with this. Yes, the verbs here are both in aorist tense. Secondly, we notice here that God accomplished this reconciliation through Christ by, quote, making peace, also in the aorist tense, through the blood of his cross, verse 20, and by the body of his flesh through death, verse 22. Again, Raymond writes, it must be noted that it is Christ's death that reconciled God to men. But Christ's death per se has not removed the unholy alienation that most people have toward God. It was his own alienation toward those for whom Christ died, which God offered or God himself addressed through Christ, in which he took steps to remove by Christ's death on the cross. And so as we conclude, while there are many other observations we can make, what we see at this brief look is, is that it was the purpose of Christ's death to address God's alienation towards those for whom he died. It was a completed, finished, accomplished work by Christ and that he paid the penalty due to us for our sin. And God's hostility toward us would not have been removed apart from that work. And while, yes, it's true that Christ would not have died for us had not God loved us, it is equally true, says Raymond, that God would not be to us what he is if Christ had not died. That is to say, God could not have been reconciled to us. It could only have continued in his holy hostility toward us had Christ not died 
for us. So I hope you're getting the big picture here. This emphasis scripture places on this work from these various aspects. We're not talking about a potential salvation that may or may not come about if men only accept it. We are dealing with a historical, one-time, once-for-all, completed, perfect work in which Christ actually accomplished redemption for those for whom it was intended. That's the main thing I want, to, I want you to see as we focus here on the, on the nature of his atonement. Well, my thing's flashing at me. I'm out of time. On times, I don't want to incur his judgment either later. <laughs> but Lord willing, we will continue next Lord's Day. And we'll look at one more aspect before addressing the question, for whom did Christ die?